Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Abby Rothstein. These weren't like your grandmother's kitchen knives. These were like Crocodile Dundee approved. (laughs) Now that's a knife. That and more. But first, boy, are we really on a roll with the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. David Crabb does such a phenomenal job producing and hosting the show. And the Hotel Cafe is such a wonderful, cozy space. It's in a very hip and happening part of town. And the audiences are so sweet and smart and fun. It's a really wonderful night out. And as much as I love podcasts, there's just no denying that being there in the room with the storyteller and taking their story in in real time, it's just very special. And the next Risk LA show is February 20th. So go to risk-show.com slash tour to get tickets. And if you're in Philly or anywhere near Philly, you're not going to want to miss the Risk Live show at World Cafe Live on March 2nd. Spread the word. Bring friends. We haven't been in Philly in years. The stories that we've been prepping are remarkable, and I'm going to be there. (laughs) So it's a special occasion in many ways. March 2nd in Philly. And again, tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. We'll be right back. Now here's the show. Risk! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is The Slip behind me now and we're calling this week's episode exposure in the therapeutic sense in a little bit we're going to hear from john o'bear who works with capital storytelling out of sacramento california this is one of those episodes where there's a lighter story and then a heavier story and john's is the heavier story there's an accident in it where people sustain injuries, the kind of thing that makes some people queasy. But before that, we're going to hear the lighter story on the episode by Abby Rothstein, who also works with Capital Storytelling. It's a complete and total coincidence because John's story is radio style, but Abby's was recorded at the Risk Live show in Reno, Nevada, just a couple months back last year. You can find her at abbysteen39 on Instagram. And here she is now, Abby Rothstein, with a story we call Stabby Motions. So it's eight o'clock at night, and I am standing in the middle of a traffic median in the middle of San Francisco. And I'm not alone there. There's about 30 other people there with me. And it's a pretty busy night. There's cars going back and forth. And every single one of us in this long traffic median are screaming at the drivers of those cars, I hope you get killed in an accident. I hope you die. 
just another night in San Francisco. I should probably mention that though most of these people are strangers to me, we all do have one thing in common, which is that we all have OCD. And we are all in San Francisco to take part in the annual OCD conference, which is actually taking place in the hotel right across the median from where we were screaming. And at this conference, there, you know, there's panels and there's support groups and there's all kinds of things. And all of us were there to do this exposure therapy scavenger hunt. I could have gone to the happy hour. So the thing with OCD is the way you manage it, the way you beat it, is by getting exposed to your fears and then not ritualizing. So we weren't out there alone. We didn't just kind of pick up a, you know, a check sheet and say, okay, scream at the drivers. No, we were there with a highly trained OCD specialist but he was this really gruff guy, this middle-aged guy, and he had this like really rough beard to kind of match his personality. And he was carrying this really big duffel bag, and it looked really heavy. I didn't know what was in the duffel bag. Nobody was asking what was in the duffel bag. He was just telling us, okay, so you're gonna scream at these drivers. <laughs> okay, all right. Now, I've had OCD since I was 10 years old, didn't know it at the time. But I was living in Southern California, and I experienced my very first earthquake. You never forget your first. <laughs> and, it, and it shook me up, obviously, literally, and physically, and mentally. And I kept seeing the newscasters on TV talking about the buildings that had collapsed and the freeway overpasses that had collapsed. They'd zoom in on this. And also they talked about the people who had died. And for some reason, in my little 10-year-old heart, I thought that all of this was my fault. OCD doesn't make any sense. It never does. You can't piece it together. So. Over the years, not only was I responsible for earthquakes, I started to believe that I was responsible for all kinds of other things, tornadoes, hurricanes, death, dying, diseases. I apologize for COVID. <laughs> I also was responsible for car accidents. So when I was standing in that median, that exposure was for me. I was screaming at those drivers, and logically, you know, you're not going to kill somebody by screaming at them, but you have to expose yourself to that and not ritualize. So I did, and when the OCD therapist said that, you know, he thought, he felt that we were done, he led us across the street safely, and he took us to this parking garage. And it was this really huge parking garage, like five stories high. And he had us just all following him, still carrying the duffel bag. So we get to the top of this parking garage, 
And he says to all of us, all right, who has hand sanitizer? Again, before COVID. And so some people, their, their OCD involves, you know, fear of contamination and germs. This was not my fear, but I was going to do every single one of these exposures for the principle of it. I was going to do it all. Some people did have this fear, and uh, the, this lady next to me, Kat, she, she had hand sanitizer. I saw her kind of pulling it out. And uh, the therapist said, all right, I want your hand sanitizer. So one person volunteered, this tall, skinny dude, and uh, he gave his hand sanitizer to the OCD therapist, the gruff OCD therapist. And he just opened it up and walked to the edge of the parking garage and poured it out. Pretty sure no one was on the, on the ground. There was no viscous rain on their heads. Just poured it out. Again, this is not my, my deal, but I was looking and I was horrified. <laughs> and then when he was done, he said, okay, anybody else have sanitizer? And he was like, okay. So they all had to go and pull out their, cat went, she looked nervous, but she went over and unscrewed their tops and then just everybody was pouring down hand sanitizer onto the streets of San Francisco. <laughs> Once we were done, the therapist said, okay, let's go. So we go down the stinky stairwell and he leads us to the back of this parking garage, and it has several dumpsters behind, and they are filled to the brim, and they smell too. And he says to all of us, all right, so now we're gonna put our hands on the dumpsters. Again, not my deal, I'm horrified. So I'm looking at Kat, and I'm like, you gonna do this? She's like, I guess I'm gonna do this. And I'm like, okay, let's do this. We're both gonna do this. I didn't tell her this wasn't my thing. I just said, well, let's do this. And so we both walk up to the dumpster, put our hand on it. And we did it, we did it. We, we, I said, you did it. I gave her a thumbs up. She gave me a thumbs up. I said, yes, we did it. Okay, I wasn't that enthusiastic, but we did it. And now, it's toward the end of the night, and the OCD therapist is down at the end of this alley, and we have to go follow him. We're this, like, ragtag bunch of now fully anxious people <laughs> walking down the street, and we're following him. And we get to this park, and it's like 9 o'clock at night. We're not a mob, but there's a lot of us. And we get to this park, and there's some park police there, or whatever they are, and they see us and go, you're going to have to leave because the park is closing. And the highly trained OCD specialist took them aside. I can't read lips, but I'm pretty sure he said, I'm a highly trained OCD therapist. <laughs> and we're gonna be doing an exposure. They left. <laughs> and it's a good thing he didn't tell them about the knives. 
that's what was in the duffel bag. These weren't like your grandmother's kitchen knives. These were like Crocodile Dundee approved. Now that's a knife. This exposure was going to be for people who believed that their thoughts could cause harm to other people. So remember, I'm evil incarnate. This is an exposure just for me. Didn't know it at the time. So the people who didn't have this sort of flavor of OCD, he told them, okay, you're, all of you are going to go and form two straight lines to the side and keep some space in between. And then for the rest of us, we were going to go and get knives. Now, I'm pretty sure they were ground down. You know, we couldn't hurt people. Pretty sure there were safety precautions taken. So I didn't want to be at the front of the line. I just kind of got to the middle of the line, and I'm waiting, and he's handing out knives, and there's a knife there and a knife there and a knife there. And he, I get up to him finally, and... He looks at me and he's like, well, this knife looks like it's for you. <laughs> so I take the knife and I'm holding it very tightly. And what we're supposed to be doing, as soon as we all get our knives, is run through the two lines of people in that space. And he told them to scream at us. <laughs> so again, I did not want to go first. So I go to the back of the line, and as you can imagine, I'm nervous, but I've got to expose myself to this fear. He said we could make little stabby motions with the knives if we wanted. So everybody starts screaming. And the line starts to move. One person goes down with their knife. Another person goes, another person. I'm hearing the screaming and the screaming. And then finally, it's my turn. And I run down this line. I didn't make any stabby motions. <laughs> and I didn't hurt anyone. <laughs> This was about four years ago, and while I still struggle, and I still recognize that OCD exposures are absolutely ridiculous sometimes, <laughs> I still practice them. Thank you. You know, I guess that you would be the only one who would dare to come here? So I take the knife, <laughs> and I'm holding it very tightly. You've got courage. He was this really gruff guy. Mm. I get up to him finally, and I'm like, okay, let's do this. We're both going to do this. Before you get a chance to fight with me, you must observe our rules and beat these two swordsmen first. I'm waiting, and he's handing out knives, and there's a knife there, and a knife there, and a knife there, and he, he said we could make little stabby motions. And he told them to scream at us. I didn't make any stabby motions. And they smell, too. 
He looks at me and he's like, My Tiger Kung Fu is better than yours. I don't think you're good enough to avenge your master. And he says, Admit it, am I not much better than you? And I'm like, I hope you get killed in an accident. We'll be right back. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We're back. So it's the mid-90s, and I've spent the day rafting with three friends on the South Fork of the American River in Northern California, Jolie, Chris, and Claudia. And we are college friends, and we're fellow whitewater guides out for the first trip of the season. Pretty cold, but the air is crisp, clear, and it's really a beautiful day, just a perfect day. At 31, I'm an environmental sciences grad student who moonlights as a whitewater raft guide, and they pretty much think I'm a senior citizen, but me, I'm just happy to have an opportunity to avoid impending adulthood. So we get to the takeout, pack up all the gear, and drive out into the sunset, and it truly was a beautiful sunset. All I can think about is heading for our favorite taqueria and beers and burritos. I hear the motorcycles before I can see them in my rear view. When they appear, I see that there's eight to ten of them, and they're out for a Sunday ride. It's actually Valentine's Day. And they look so carefree. We are starting down a long, sloping, rightward curve, and they begin to pass me on the outside of the turn, on my left, and they're in the fast lane. 
And I notice that one of the bikers who has a passenger is slowly, imperceptibly weaving left and right. And then I watch in horror as he slowly drifts left toward the guardrail at 70 miles per hour. And the impact is sickening. It's an explosion of flesh, bone, steel, and asphalt. And we are horrified at what's happening right next to us outside the window of the car. I pull over quickly and we jump out and pull out all of our gear. Because you see, the four of us just a week earlier had all graduated with our EMT certification. And it's not that we wanted to become working EMTs and first responders. We just wanted to be better prepared for what to do if something went wrong on the river or in the backcountry. So miraculously, the passenger, a woman, was standing at the shoulder. So Chris and Claudia respond to her leaving Jolie and I to respond to the now helmetless biker who is 20 yards away, face down in the fast lane. I grab all of my gear and my first aid and I am absolutely petrified. We walk toward this man and I can see that blood is pooling by his side. His body is heaving, he is still alive. I'm trying to fight back the panic. I'm trying to fight back the tears. So I resort to the classic mantra of first responders, airway, breathing, circulation, airway, breathing, circulation, in hopes that it will momentarily convince me that I can do something, that I can help this man. Now, like petrified robots, we orchestrate a turn so that we have any chance whatsoever of establishing an airway because there's nothing we can do unless we can get air to this man. When we turn him over, his face is gone, lost somewhere along the roadway. And under the circumstances, there is nothing we can do. Our training and our equipment doesn't allow us to do anything. And again, I continue to try to fight back the panic I can hear him groaning, and I try to assure him that it's going to be okay. Help is on the way. As I sit there leaning over his mangled body, I notice that gawkers are still driving past, looking at me horrified. And I think, well, how the fuck do you think I feel? At some point, a woman calmly walks up and sets something next to me. It's an arm. It's his arm. And I hadn't even noticed it was missing. On his bicep is a tattoo that says, Mother, neatly framed by a heart. And then, out of the chaos, steps a man, calm, confident, all business. I'm an ER doc, he says. Let me take a look. He had also been driving by and felt an obligation to help. After taking deep pulses in his thigh, in his armpit, he looks at us, looks at his watch and says, he's dead. You're done. So I pick up my gear 
take off my gloves and I lay them next to his body because I want nothing to do with them. With the whir of a helicopter I can hear approaching, I walk through the sirens and the gridlock and I sit on the shoulder of the highway and I sob. I know that my friends are hurting too, but I have nothing for them. The drive home is quiet. We talk a bit, but mostly have nothing to say. As I try to sleep that night, my brain goes over the images again and again and again. I awake and I am sickened. I try to suppress, repress, and forget, but I cannot make the images go away. It just doesn't work. It's as though I've turned my train of thought over to Wes Craven and Stephen King. Now, at this point in my life, I'm, I'm not really a touchy-feely sort of guy. I'm not really someone who talks a lot about my feelings. Growing up, my parents loved me, but we didn't talk a lot about feelings. And if you hit a rough patch, you just plow through it and you move on. But I begin to have this almost compulsion to share this story, to literally and figuratively talk it out of my body. Now, this is kind of problematic because this isn't what we do in a polite society, just share gruesome shit with random people. At first, I tell my fellow EMT graduates, and of course, they are horrified. It's, it's like nothing that we even had talked about in class. And then I approach friends, family, co-workers. And after a grim content warning, many of them balk. But for those who consent, I unload the gore and their jaws just drop. And over the course of a week and a dozen plus retellings, each time my load lightens a bit and the pain diminishes a bit. And after a week, I'm just done. I'm done. Now, it's not like it didn't happen. The images are still there, but they're tucked away neatly in some small part of my brain to be accessed on my terms, to be thought about when I want to think about them. And I had somehow organically stumbled on a way to normalize this pain and normalize this trauma, to take away its venom. I hadn't known any of this at the time, but years later I understood this to be a way of working through it. I think about that 31-year-old guy who kept all of this inside, who didn't talk with others, and he seems dark. So, this has always made me feel a deep compassion for those who carry heavy pain and trauma. It pains me to think that there are those who carry such things alone. Years later, just a few years ago, I learned that a friend and co-worker has gone through an unimaginable painful loss and I try to reach out to him but it is clear that he needs time and space 
and my heart aches for the pain I know he is dealing with. Five months later, we finally get together over beers. And at first, we talk about the trivial stuff. Our pets, the NFL, work politics, really all trivial bullshit under the circumstances. I mean, it is so wonderful to see my quick-witted, big-hearted, sarcastic friend, but he is different. How could he not be? I let him know that he is free to talk about anything he wants, but it's absolutely up to him. And at first, he tests the water with some background details. And then he launches into a story of unimaginable pain and personal loss and trauma and tragedy. I am stunned at what I am hearing, at what he has been carrying all this time. Sitting there oblivious to the rest of the world, we cry. Finally, we come up for air, and he says, I haven't told that story to anyone except my therapist, and I, I wasn't planning on telling it to you. It just happened. And I said, I am deeply grateful that you trusted me enough to share this with me. You don't have to carry it alone. This is Risk. This is Patty Griffin behind me now. And before that, we heard from John O'Bear of Capital Storytelling in Sacramento. Now look them up at capitalstorytelling.com. They do so much wonderful work, and I feel like we're so simpatico that I would really love to learn even more about them and connect with them to maybe brainstorm together because... 
Holy cow, it's we've got two two people who shared wonderful stories on today's episode who come out of capital storytelling. And before uh, John, we heard that interstitial by Taj Easton with, with uh, some kung fu movie villain reactions to Abby Rothstein's story. You know, I'm taking a hypnotherapy course this year. I'm, you know, by the end of the year, hoping to be certified as someone who can give hypnotherapy. And we have learned about exposure therapy and learned about instances where hypnotherapists will do that sort of thing too, but nowhere. <laughs> nowhere near as bonkers as that therapist that, that Abby had worked with. I think I did hear a story about Milton Erickson, one of the most famous hypnotherapists of all time, advising a woman who was super terribly shy and who had a crush on this particular man in her office that she was too shy to say anything about. He advised her to take a sip of a glass of water and spit it in his face. <laughs> in like a prankish spirit. And lo and behold, they ended up married. <laughs> but... I think uh, I think I am not going to be that risky, at least initially in my hypnotherapeutic work. At least initially. Maybe eventually I'll have everyone spitting all over each other. We'll be right back. We're back. Well, that's about it, folks. Next week on Risk, Rain de Grey gets crucified. <laughs> A story that had people's jaws on the floor at that Reno show last year. But that is next week. And folks, today's the day. Take a risk. And you are not Playing in the light. Put out the fire in your You are not alone Laying in the light Put out the fire in your head And lay with me Next week on Risk. You are more beautiful than a hot dog and a beer. If you ever dig a hole and put a bag in someone's head and bury them upside down and crucify them and cane them and whip them, really, the considerate thing to do is to bring some mosquito spray. It really ain't the place nor time to reel off rhyming diction. But yet we'll write a final rhyme while waiting crucifixion. We need him crucified.
life. It's all you have to do. We need him crucified. It's all you have to do. Talk to me, Jesus Christ. You have been brought here. Manacle beaten by your own people. Do you have the first idea why you deserve it? Talk to me, Jesus Christ. The hot dog guy told me where you lived.